Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Luke chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. I want to read one verse of scripture. It's a very precious verse to me. It has meant much to me over the years, and I trust and pray that it will mean much to you today as well. Luke chapter 12. Someone uh, once said that if you rake scripture, you might get leaves. But if you use a shovel and dig, you might find treasure. Well, we're going to dig this morning. We're not just going to rake the surface of the text because it really doesn't yield a great deal that's helpful. We're going to dig deeply into it, and I trust that you will enjoy the treasure that we find. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 12, we read this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, you know all too well, obviously, since you know all things, that fear, anxiety, worry has gripped the hearts of the entire earth during this past year and a half, two years. So many events that have unfolded that have rocked our world, rocked the nation, rocked our churches, racial division, presidential politics, economic upswings and downturns, and um, a pandemic that continues to rage throughout the earth. Lord, so many people in the grip of fear. So Father, we acknowledge that today. We're not trying to hide our true feelings, but we pray that by the power of your spirit, we would hear the words of Jesus not just as they were spoken to that original group of disciples, but as he is speaking now today, don't be afraid, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Lord, would you do what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119 verse 18? Would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word? We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. I am thoroughly persuaded that you and I will never experience the fullness of the Christian life that Jesus Christ came to give us until we have learned how to enjoy God. We can be religiously active. We can be faithful in attendance at church. We can be generous in our giving. We can share our faith with others. We can be avid readers of scripture. But until you come to understand what it means to enjoy God, very little lasting fruit will come from your life. So what do I mean when I say enjoying God? Well, I'm talking about the sheer delight the unadulterated joy of knowing him and what he's like. It's the experience of deep, soul-satisfying happiness in God, in all that God is for us in Jesus. 
It is to find in him our supreme treasure, to be fascinated and captivated and enthralled with all that God is and all that he has done for us in Christ. I think Paul the Apostle had this very much in mind in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. He says, when I pray that the Spirit of God would strengthen you in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and that you together with all the saints might be rooted and grounded in love so that you can comprehend what is beyond comprehension, the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God in Christ. Peter in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about much the same thing. He talks about loving Jesus and rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know you are enjoying God, to use Peter's language, when somebody asks you to describe it and you, well, let me put, it's indescribable. Words escape, you you don't even know how to articulate it. It's what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 73 when he said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion of my life. You know you're enjoying God when you can confidently say with David in Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But we have a problem. And the problem is our belief, false though it be, that God does not, cannot, and never will enjoy us. That's the problem we face. The fact of the matter is our capacity to delight in God is only as good as our capacity to enjoy God's delight in ourselves. And we have to be honest about it, folks. We we say, how could a holy God, infinitely pure and righteous, a God who's worth his salt, ever take delight in someone like me? who has failed so miserably, who keeps repeating the same sins over and over again. I find it almost impossible to believe that God would look at me and feel anything other than utter disgust. That is why every once in a while, maybe more often than that, we need to be reminded of how indescribably good and giving God is. That there are depths of delight in his heart toward you, his children, his sons and daughters, that according to Zephaniah 3.17, prompts him literally, not figuratively, literally to break out in singing over you. Now, I realize that for some of you, this sounds a bit trite. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you've heard ever since you were a Christian, growing up in the church, perhaps. And yet it's one of the more difficult things for Christian men and women actually to believe we all too live, all too often live in the fear that God isn't really good at heart. And if he does give us things, he does it reluctantly and begrudgingly, and it's against his better judgment. I think this comes from a lot of things. It may be from seeing so much bad in the world. I mean, look around you today. The world is in chaos. Our lives are in a mess. And we look at that and we say, how can I trust that God is as good as The word of God seems to say he is. Or maybe if God is good, he's only good to those who are themselves good. And since I'm no good, he won't be good to me. 
We have all sorts of excuses, all sorts of reasons. That's why I take such delight in meditating on this single verse of Scripture, Luke 12, 32. Every syllable in this text is designed to address the fear you have in your heart that God isn't good, he cannot be trusted, and certainly there's no way he could ever enjoy you as his child. This passage is about the very nature of God. It's not talking about what he does, has to do, is obligated to do, what some law compels him to do. It's what he delights in doing for his people. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There are seven incredible treasures in this one verse. And you say, are you kidding? There are hardly seven words in this verse. Well, that's what happens when you use a rake when you read scripture and you just kind of scratch over the surface. But when you dig deeply into it, you're going to find treasure. Notice the seven treasures. The very first one, fear not. Now, if you know anything about Luke's gospel, you know that this language has already appeared several times. Back in chapter one, when the angel appeared to Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, who was to become the mother of John the Baptist, he was terrified. And the angel, first thing out of his mouth, don't be afraid, Zechariah. And then later in, in chapter one, when Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she was going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah, fear not. Later in chapter two of Luke's gospel, when the angels appeared to the shepherds out in the fields, fear not. Now, the fact of the matter is, in those instances, the word was necessary because those people were in genuine terror. They were afraid for their physical welfare. If you had, that's why I wonder sometimes when people talk about angels showing up at their kitchen table and, you know, they have a nice little cup of coffee with them. If an angel appeared to me like they did in the gospel of Luke, I think the first things I want to hear is don't be afraid. I'm not here to destroy you. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying here when he says fear not is, don't worry. Don't be filled with anxiety. Don't fret yourselves. Don't lie awake at night wondering, agonizing as to whether or not God's intentions toward you are really good. So he's telling them, he's telling us not to live in fear or anxiety that you have put your faith in something that ultimately is going to let you down. Sometimes we just, we, we have this idea in our minds that it's all just too good to be true. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. You see, this is the fear that keeps us from ultimately trusting God's promises. We're convinced that he, deep down inside, even if we find him doing something good on our behalf, he didn't really want to. Maybe Jesus compelled him to, or maybe he, somehow he was tricked into it. We don't believe that God is really generous at heart, but basically he's irked with us. Jesus is saying, fear not, little flock. Now, it's easy for us to convince ourselves intellectually of this. Now, we can memorize a text like this and remind ourselves over and over again, but to receive the reality of this and deep down in our hearts is so much more difficult. Uh, think, for example, not only 
on TV in some show, but in real life, you've seen instances in which a judge in a courtroom really wants to lay out the most severe punishment possible on the defendant. Deep down inside, that judge knows this person is guilty, but some very clever and gifted lawyer remembers a slight technicality that compels the judge to say not guilty. And we think that's kind of how God is with us. You know, deep down inside, he wants to throw the book at us. But for whatever reason, he chooses to be generous. Or maybe it's a, 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 a person that you're not really in a good relationship with them. And on your birthday, they show up with an incredible, exquisite gift. And you say to yourself, deep down inside, I don't really think they mean this. It's obviously trying to manipulate me, trying to set me up for something later on. And Jesus says, when it comes to your relationship with your heavenly father, don't think like that. Now, he's not saying that we should never fear God. There is a healthy reverential awe trembling in the presence of an infinitely holy God. What he's saying is don't live in fear that your God is Scrooge, that he's stingy, that at bottom he gives reluctantly against his nature. I think sometimes we, we fear this because that's what we've experienced with other people. Some of you here today heard words at an, at an altar, at a wedding service, where somebody pledged their love to you and their presence in your life until death do you part. And then one day you looked around and they're no longer there. And you say, how do I know God won't walk out on me? How do I know that he won't renege on his promises? Maybe he's just saying these things to set me up, to, to put me off my guard. And then he's going to send me off to China to be a missionary or something of that sort, which would be an expression of his love, not his hatred anyway. So the first treasure, it's, it, it's words of comfort and reassurance from Jesus. It's not so much a warning. It's a, hey, folks, don't be afraid. Don't live in anxiety about the reality of God's goodness. Notice the second of these treasures. It's found in the words, good pleasure. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, if you're reading a different translation, for example, the New American Standard Bible says he has chosen gladly. The NIV says he has been pleased. In every case, it's the translation of one word in the original text. And the fascinating thing about this one word is that it's used Five, uh, excuse me, six times in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, six times. Here's one of them. In the five other instances where this word appears, it's always in the same context. And you probably know what I'm talking about. At the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My son in whom I take great pleasure and delight. Folks, think about this. Jesus chose that word of all the words he could have used to describe how he felt about how God the Father feels about you and me. It's just simply stunning. It's almost as if Jesus pauses before he even uh, states this in Luke 12, 32. He says, hey, guys, do you remember me telling you about my baptism? Because remember, they, he hadn't called them to himself yet. So do you remember tell, me telling you what happened in the water? how John baptized me and the heavens opened up and the spirit descended like a dove and this booming voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's like he's now turns to them and says, 
God the Father is just as delighted and pleased and happy about giving you the kingdom as he is pleased in me, his only begotten son. The Father's heart is bursting with affection and pride and joy and excitement in giving you the kingdom. So I don't want to rush through this. I want you to hear the force of this language. Just as God delights in Jesus, just as he is pleased and happy and thrilled with his incarnate son, so he is happy and pleased and delighted and brimming with joy to give you the kingdom. That's just simply mind-blowing. It's breathtaking. So Jesus is saying God is not acting in generosity in order to hide some malicious motive. There's not some other intention behind his expression of giving. He gives freely. Reminds me of a statement, and you all know it well, in the Old Testament where God's speaking to Israel during their time of captivity. Jeremiah 32, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Did you hear that? He says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. You know, we say, okay, God is good. Maybe he wants to bless me, but how do I know he won't change his mind next week? After my next failure. And God says, I will not turn away from doing good. And then he says, I will rejoice in doing you good. I, I don't do it reluctantly. I I'm just thrilled to be able to do this. And then, and I'll do it with all my heart and all my soul, not half-heartedly, but with everything in my infinite being as God, I take delight in doing good to my children. Third treasure. Look at how Jesus refers to God. Father. He could have said, fear not little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, or it's the ruler of the universe's good pleasure, or it's the king or, you know, it's the Lord's good pleasure to give you the king. But he didn't do that. He said, I want you to think of God as your father. Tragically, many of us struggle to do that. We think of God as our employer. He's our boss. We're here to work for him, to supply what he lacks. He doesn't say that. He's not our president or our next door neighbor, a friend or a relative. He's not our coach. He's not a teacher. He's our father. Now, I realize that for some of you, that doesn't help. I was blessed to have a wonderful Christian father. He's now with the Lord. He, I, I couldn't have asked for anyone better. But for a lot of you, that's not the case. Perhaps your father was rather abusive. It may have been in your case that it wasn't abusive because he just wasn't there. He was absent. Or maybe he was an accusing father, and the only thing he ever pointed out to you was how many times you'd failed. Or maybe he was just utterly apathetic. He just simply didn't care. And so when you hear Jesus talk about God as your father, you just kind of flinch rather than rejoice. But God is unlike any earthly father. He never fails to speak the truth. He will always be there when we need him. He never fails to come through. I always tell people, how then do I get over the hump, the hurdle of this image in my mind of my earthly father who is nothing like what Jesus says God is like. And I say, the way you unlearn the painful lessons of a broken and abusive earthly father and relearn what God is really like is to look at Jesus. 
Remember Philip who said to Jesus, just show us the Father and that's enough. Jesus said to him in John 14, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you're struggling with the word Father and that image of God, just turn your eyes toward Jesus and everything you see in him, know that that is true of your heavenly Father. The fourth treasure. It's found in that little word, give. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't put it up for sale. I mean, if I can just expand on that image for a moment, how many of you have spent most of your Christian lives trying to amass enough good works that you can purchase the blessings of God? That somehow you can say, look, Lord, look at all I've sacrificed, look at all I've given, look at all I've done. Is that enough to get your kingdom and all its blessings? And listen to me, it's free. I'm giving it to you. You can't purchase it. God doesn't trade the kingdom for something else. You don't come to him and say, hey, you want to swap, Lord? I've got all this stuff, all these promises I've kept. And is that enough to get the kingdom in exchange? No, he gives it. This isn't an auction. You don't have to look around and worry that there are people around here who have more to bid for God's kingdom than you do. He gives it. You see, the dynamics of giving are essential for us to understand. God is himself a giver, not a getter. His greatest delight and glory comes not from making demands, but in meeting needs. Think about what it's like when you give. Have you ever, uh, maybe it's a friend that you want to bless at Christmas or a birthday or anniversary or whatever, and you come and you hand them this incredible gift and their response is, oh my, this is way too much. You, you've gone, oh, I, I can't accept this. I just simply can't. You know how you feel when that happens? They just rob you of the joy of giving and your face just falls and your heart is broken. Their joy in receiving is an expression of your joy in giving. You see, the bottom line, folks, we just don't trust givers. I mean, seriously, we don't. If somebody that in your circle of acquaintances, not necessarily a close friend, maybe you've had a strained relationship, and they come to you one day with an incredible gift, and you say, what's this for? I just wanted to bless you today. Say, mm, okay. And they come back the next day with another one. And then the next day with another one. And finally, the next day when they come with another one, you say, all right, hold it right there. What are you up to? <laughs> Nobody is this generous. Sir, sir, you've got something else in mind. You're getting ready to manipulate me or use these gifts as a way of securing some service on, uh, for you on my part. We just don't trust givers. But not God. He gives and gives freely because he delights in giving. He enjoys the joy we get from getting what he joyfully gives. So how do you honor a God like that? If God is fundamentally a giver, how do you honor him? Well, I remember an illustration uh, by John Piper in one of his books. 
He said, there's a difference between how you conceive of God. Do you think of God as primarily a watering trough or a self-replenishing mountain stream? Now, how do you honor and serve a watering trough? Well, you do it by making sure that it's always filled with water. And then when it goes down, when it's been depleted, you take up the responsibility of filling it back up again. Is that, is that how you think of God? Or do you envision him as a self-replenishing mountain stream? How do you honor that? Well, you don't do it by organizing a bucket brigade and pouring water into that mountain stream because it doesn't need it. It just continually and continually and never ceasingly gives and flows. The way you honor a mountain stream is you get down on your hands and your knees and you drink to your soul's satisfaction. Then you get up and you go tell other people where they can quench their thirst. That is what God is like. He is a giver, not a getter. All right, the fifth treasure. It's that little word, flock. Fear not, little flock. He's obviously talking about sheep. We're not described as a pride of ferocious lions or a pack of ravenous wolves or a herd of thundering elephants. We're just a flock of sheep. Dumb sheep. Utterly dependent sheep prone to wander. The fact of the matter is, folks, this is the, the biggest roadblock to our acceptance of God is good. This threatens to sabotage everything I'm saying to you today. Why? Because you know you're a sheep. You know who you are. You know how you are prone to wander. You know how you have failed. And that's why it's so difficult to get it into your mind and into your heart God just takes great delight in giving you the kingdom. You see, it's our knowledge of ourselves that works against us. I know my own soul better than any other human being. And I know my weaknesses. I know my sins, my failures, my lack of faith, my greed, my selfishness, my pride. And if I know that about me, how much more does an infinitely knowledgeable God know? And if I'm disgusted with myself, how much more disgusted must he be? I know I'm just a sheep. Let me expand on this for a moment. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Psalm 103, or if you already know it well, you don't need to. Let me remind you of what the psalmist says. Our knowledge of God's knowledge of us is perhaps the greatest obstacle to hearing what Jesus is saying and being transformed by it. Think about it for a moment. Why do you hesitate to draw near to God? Why is it that in a manner of speaking, you kind of hold him at arm's length? Why is it that when you sin, you run from him rather than to him? It's because you know he knows far better than you even know yourself. He knows that we are dumb, ungrateful sheep. And this serves as an obstacle to our ability, our capacity to enjoy him. I mean, after all, why shouldn't he be disgusted with, our, with us? I'm disgusted with me. And God knows me far better than that. This, this affects how we relate to one another as well. Why do we put up a facade, adopt a, a relational style, a personality, a way of interacting with people that really isn't true to who we are. It's because we're terrified that if it was all exposed and they would see us for who we really are, they'd go, yuck, 
I don't want anything to do with you. You're disgusting. We live in fear of that. It's the same way with God. But even more so when we realize we can't fool him. We can't hide behind a facade. He knows us intimately and infinitely. We might be able to fool some people some of the time. We can never fool God at any time. His knowledge of us, he knows every impulse, every thought, every feeling, every act of will, every decision. Now, again, I I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting for a moment that God isn't displeased with our sin. Of course he is. But sometimes we think that that displeasure means that he's not to be trusted and that his goodness is really veiled um, and behind it stands some sort of ill intent on his part. Our knowledge of God's knowledge of us appears to be an imposing obstacle to our ability to enjoy him. Now, having said that, do you remember what Psalm 103 says? It is just a treasure house of incredible blessings from God. He's forgiven all our iniquities. He's healed our diseases. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I mean, it just piles up one after another. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the father shows compassion to those who fear him. I mean, it's an incredible array and list of blessings from God. But then I think, wait a minute. Doesn't God's knowledge of who I am and and how I'm constructed and how I live my life undermine all of that. But then we come to verse 14 of Psalm 103, the most important verse in this entire Psalm. He's just listed all these incredible blessings. And then he says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, I don't know about you folks. That's not how I reason. My logic does not work like that. My logic says it's precisely because he knows my frame and he knows that I'm but dust that he would never do the things that I've just described in the earlier part of this psalm. Isn't that how we typically think? God says, but guess what, Sam? My ways are not your ways. My logic isn't your logic. God says it is precisely because I know your frame. I made you. It's precisely because I know you're but dust that I have chosen to show compassion and to forgive and to heal and to deliver and to bless and to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, I have to confess, folks, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. That that absolutely does not compute, but it does to God. So, this, this obstacle, our knowledge of God's knowledge of us, ruins any hope that we have to trust that he's really good. And God says, no, no, no. You bet I know you. I know you better than you'll ever know yourself. And it's precisely because I do that I've chosen to be gracious and generous and kind in giving you the kingdom. So no matter how well we know our own hearts, if we would but know God's, all the fear and the anxiety in our relationship with him would disappear. He is an ever-flowing, abundant, 
effusive fountain of goodness toward his children. So, coming back to this treasure in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Yes, we're a flock of sheep. But what does that mean? It means Psalm 23. (laughs) It means the promise of green pastures and gentle waters and guidance and light and comfort in the presence of death and overflowing cups of goodness and God's goodness and mercy pursuing us all the days of our life. All right, the sixth treasure. Fear not, what kind of flock? Just a little one. We're not even a big flock. It's bad enough being a flock of sheep, at least we could be large. Maybe that would count for something. Now, the interesting thing about this, uh, this word little is it can have two implications. And I'm not really exactly sure which one. Sometimes this word is used as a term of endearment. Now, I have two daughters. They're both grown now, and I have four grandchildren. But my two daughters, Melanie and Joanna, Mel and Joey, as we called them, I can remember many times growing up, you know, late at night, a thunderstorm would hit, as we typically would have in Oklahoma, or the tornado sirens would go off on a regular basis. They would run, and they would jump in bed with me and Ann, and just trembling in fear, and I would take them into my arms I say, hey, little Mel, don't worry. Daddy's here. We're going to take care of you. Little Joey, it's okay. It's a way of expressing that deep, heartfelt affection for a child that leads us to speak in this way. Now, that may be what Jesus has in mind, little flock. Or it may be actually a reference to our size and our influence. He may be saying, look, At least then, at that time, there were only 12 of them and a few ragtag followers beyond. Maybe he's saying, don't think that somehow God is only going to be good to the megachurch. God's only going to be good when you exert great influence in society and in in the culture of the local assembly of God's people. He's saying, it doesn't matter how small or tiny you may be. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, worldly standards of success and achievement simply don't operate in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be big. You don't have to be well-known. You don't have to be quoted in the paper or on the internet. You don't have to be, have a multiplicity of followers in social media. Don't be afraid, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The seventh and the final treasure, kingdom. Think about it, kingdom. You see, one of the reasons I think that we oftentimes fear in the way that Jesus is telling us not to is because we have trusted God to give us things which he never promised. And then when he doesn't come through, we're convinced he obviously doesn't care. And we've, we said, God, I'm, I've believed you and trusted you for financial wealth and good health power, popularity, and then when those things don't materialize, sometimes even their very opposite comes into our experience, we say, well, there you go. I knew this idea of your goodness was a pipe dream all along. It's just not not to be trusted. But what has God promised to give us? The kingdom. Now think about this. Okay, it's your birthday, or maybe it's Christmas morning, I don't know. 
and you've been dropping hints, you're, you're young, you've been dropping hints to your parents for weeks what it is that you want. And maybe you've ripped a page out of the advertisement and you stuck it on the refrigerator door. You know, a little arrow pointing to it. Maybe it's a dirt bike or a new computer or a car. And finally the day comes and you open, you have this gift in front of you and you just rip off the paper and you open the box and it's the kingdom. Couldn't you know it? I was wanting a dirt bike. I was wanting a gift card for a couple of grand. I could go buy what I get the kingdom. Good grief. Do you know what the kingdom is? It means you inherit the whole earth. The kingdom, judging angels. The kingdom of God, you forever reign with Christ. It means you're going to live forever in the utter absence of war or conflict or racial hostility. It means that you're going to live in a place where all death is gone and God wipes away every tear from your eyes. The kingdom is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 14. It means that you will never, ever experience God abandoning you, turning his back on you. But folks, you know what the greatest treasure of all in the kingdom is? The king. You see, we sometimes think that the greatest blessings of salvation are that our sins are forgiven. That's not true. That's a great blessing, no, make no mistake. Or we think it's being adopted as a child of God. That's wonderful too. Or we think it's, wow, we're gonna walk the streets of gold. Or we're gonna get a new glorified resurrected body. Those are all wonderful blessings. That we're reconciled to God, we're redeemed from sin. Praise the Lord for all those. But the reason why they're good, the reason why they're blessings that we wanna embrace is because they get us the king. They get us to God. He is our inheritance. He is our chosen portion. The greatest blessing of the kingdom is the king, his presence, his beauty, beholding him face to face forever, being satisfied, enthralled, captivated in a way that nothing else can compare. So little flock, don't be afraid. Don't live in anxiety. Don't worry. Don't think that somehow God is hiding his true intentions and he's going to pull the rug out. Don't walk through your Christian life waiting for the other shoe to fall, always looking over your shoulder, wondering if something bad is going to catch up with you and undermine everything that Jesus has promised. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I confess, as I'm sure many, if not all here today would do as well, that there are times when we really doubt you. We question your intentions. We wonder why you haven't come through for us in the way that we thought you should have. Lord, I thank you for this reassuring word, for these seven glorious treasures in this one verse of scripture. Father, I, I know in the depths of my soul that if I am ever to walk in the fullness of the life that 
Christ came to give. I have to find delight and joy in my heart in you. And it's so hard. Just confess it. I, Lord, I, that's so hard because I, I find it such a, a stretch to believe that you find anything of joy in me. But you've clothed all of us who have trusted Jesus. You've clothed us in the righteousness of your son. And I thank you for all the ways in which you have dealt with our sin. You've trodden it underfoot. You've cast it into the depths of the sea. You've removed it as far as the east is from the west. You have blotted it out. You have cleansed us. You even say, I will not remember your lawless transgressions anymore. And you have made us beautiful, not because of what we have accomplished, not because of something that is inherently intrinsic to us, but because you see us in Christ, united with him, clothed in his perfections. So Father, I pray especially right now for any man or woman, young or old, who even walked in here today questioning your goodness, wondering whether or not deep down inside you're really angry and irked and frustrated with them. Let them hear the words of Jesus. Let the power of the, of the inspired scriptures speak to their hearts through your spirit. Don't be afraid, little flock. It's your father's greatest delight. His effusive, abounding, overflowing good pleasure to give you the kingdom free of charge. No cost, no price to pay. The price has been paid by Jesus. It's free to us. For anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you came visiting, came with friends or family, or you just wandered in off the streets, I hope you're hearing what Christianity is all about. It's not about big offerings or buildings or TV programs or anything of the sort. It's about coming into the experience, the liberating, life-changing, transformative experience of knowing, enjoying, seeing, being enthralled with the magnificence of the majesty of God, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And if you do not know Jesus today, my prayer for you right now is the Spirit of God would, would banish from your heart and your mind all your objections, all your questions, all the obstacles that keep you from coming to him, that you would just cast yourself on him and say, God, I don't know that I know you really well, but I want to. Would you awaken my heart to put my confident trust in who Christ is? That I would stop trying to win your affection, stop trying to barter for the kingdom, Stop thinking that I'm going to have to bid up because somebody else offered up a higher price. No, thank you, Lord, that you just give it to those who ask. So, Spirit of God, would you move in power right now in those lives? We pray this 
In the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.